Everyone, welcome to another episode of the Fitness Pro Mentors Podcast. I am here with Mr. Kasim Hansen of N1 Education. Sir, how are you doing today? I am very well. How are you? I'm doing all right, man. Hey, I'm, uh, I'm really excited to have you here. I know you've been making some big things happen all over the place in the exercise industry, and uh, I'm really honored for your time and excited to learn more about your origin story and just kind of smash some mechanics and fun things with you. Awesome. Where do you want to start? So who's Kasim Hansen? Well, uh, a lot of people think that I'm still a coach, so I'll just throw that out there. As I'm a retired coach, and now I focus purely on education. Uh, I kind of evolved from you know being somebody that was really interested in the research side of things and just kind of fell into being a coach. Uh, and then being a coach, there was still that thirst for knowledge and research, and then that kind of guided me to the path to focusing on education because at a certain point, you know, you want to learn all of these things, but, you know, applying them as a coach is kind of, we'll say, like a low return on investment for trying to learn all of these things. But if I can teach, you know, 100 coaches that can all then give that information to a ton of clients, it's like, okay, this is where you make the biggest difference. And so basically, I am just a, a teacher of all things that would be relevant to a personal trainer or coach at this point in time. That's amazing, man. Well, you do have your fingers in a lot of things. And if anyone, if you've not heard of Kesem Hansen, uh, please check out uh, N1 Education and N1 Training. You've got a couple different things where you're helping people with exercise programs and you're also um, teaching people about different exercise and um, you've talked about biomechanics and stuff like that. Um, of all the things, I mean, let's start with this. You said research, right? You started off in research. What was your foundation in research? I actually didn't know that. So where did you start and what kind of things were you doing? Yeah, so... Going through university, um, I was working towards doing performance enhancement research. Um, I thought that I could get the, you know, the career of taking things from test tube to athlete and then quickly realized how much bureaucratic and technical red tape there is to do, to do something like that. Um, and so right out, of, right out of school, my first job actually was doing research for a peptide-based company. Um, and so we were looking at like different delivery systems, you know, like nasal delivery and stuff like that for different compounds. Um, and that was cool, but it was not, we'll say it wasn't that practical. Like I really loved the training aspect of things and like the lab work. I was always the, I was always the kid that left lab early and everybody would be looking at like, are you, he's done? And I'm like, yeah, like I I'm done. Enjoy the next like four hours here. Like I got to get to the gym, you know, or I got to get to practice or whatever. Um, and so just having an abundance of lab work where I was not able to move at my pace, I kind of had to move at the pace of the company and there's just so much red tape. It's like, this is no longer fun anymore. And that's what kind of made me, I think leans towards the practical side and out of the research side. It's just the research side, just, it just ended up being a lot of busy work and a lot of waiting. Right. And I wanted like, I wanted to put things into practice now. And I think that's where the practical side is, is, you know, you can write a new program and there's an end of one of experiment that's going to happen right there, right? Immediately. Uh, it's not like, Hey, you know, maybe we're going to do an experiment in 16 weeks, you know, and then that's going to go on. And then maybe then we're going to spend a couple months, you know, writing and, you know, putting up the report. And it's like, Oh, that's just like all of that to do one thing, not near as exciting. <laughs> no kidding. Yeah. Now, I mean, that's such, I mean, that's such an interesting transition. I mean, were you always someone that loved like exercising and going to the gym or is that something that you kind of discovered uh, when you entered into your research role? 
Um, no, I, I started training, you know, for sports. Like I was always, uh, I, I will say I have like farm kid strength coming from the Midwest in Iowa. So I was always strong, um, but I didn't lift weights really, really young. Uh, my, my parents didn't come from a, you know, a background where they were really into sports or really into fitness. Uh, but my dad, you know, he was a contractor. So as a kid, I was wheelbarrowing concrete and lifting up shingles and stuff like that. And then all of a sudden sports came along and I was like, okay, I like doing these. These are, these are fun. Um, but then with sports, they introduced you to the weight room. And then it's like, oh, I started to realize that because I'd been doing so much manual labor that I was actually better at the, the, the lifting thing than I was the actual sport. Cause there was other kids that had been playing these sports for years and years and years. And here I was, it's like, I don't know any of the rules and I'm not coordinated for these things or, you know, but, uh, but I can pick things up and put them down like really well, longer, faster and harder than all of the other kids that, you know, have been playing video games all day. Um, so it, as much as I love sport, I think I equally love training. And then as I kind of went through my career as an athlete, uh, I think that started transition to, I actually started to enjoy the training a little bit more than the sport at sometimes, right? The exception maybe, you know, I really, really loved football, but you know, it just, I mean, me continuing that journey after college was just not a, not a realistic expectation. Um, but lifting obviously was. So how did you jump from, so that's awesome. And I love that. And I mean, I'm interested in that passion of jumping from the research to exercising, but I mean, when you finished sports and you were training recreationally, when did that jump happen where you started becoming a coach? Um, yeah, like, I, I, how'd that happen, man? I mean, it came basically out of a, an economic problem, right? So I had the research job, but uh, because that was slow, um, there was only like, there was only so much time that, like I had a, I had a salary or whatever, but I would, I would go through the work that I needed to do for my salary there, like so fast. And then I had this abundance of extra time. And so it was really of what do I have the skill set to do to make some more revenue in here? Um, and I kind of had this idea of wanting to like write programs and do research on programming and stuff like that. And I was like, well, the way to do this would be able to, would be to fund that through like personal training. Um, because, that's, I mean, that's something that I looked up as like, oh, I can get certified in that like really, really fast, which isn't necessarily a good thing. Um, but, uh, but at the time it seemed very convenient. Right. Uh, but now looking back, it's like, yeah, that probably should have been a, a larger barrier of entry, uh, at that point in time. Right. Um, but that, that, that basically the, the path into personal training was something I thought was just going to be temporary and just something to pay the bills. Uh, and then, I realized that I actually really liked that one-on-one -on -one experience, that coaching and that pushing people and that, that daily problem solving that you get with working with clients, right? Like every client every day comes in and they bring unique problems for you, for you to solve. And I think that's why I liked the research and that's why I've liked learning, you know, and educating myself as much as possible is, is, you know, I love solving the puzzle and, you know, being a trainer is a great way to constantly have puzzles to solve. 100%, 100%. And I mean, as you know, I mean, it's a bit of a messy world out there. So even just taking basic exercises and kind of blowing them up and talking about different components, it's really a interesting conversation and it gives you a lot of fun to play with. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. Go ahead. So I was going to ask on an extension of that with your the big jump and I want to jump kind of ahead sort of, but not really. Um, so this coaching stuff. So anyone who's listening to this, who doesn't, hasn't met me before I'm from Toronto 
And how I originally heard about you was through Ben Pakulski, because in Toronto, I was working at a place called Core Strength, where I was working with, as you and I have talked about, Peter Chason, who was, um, I mean, an incredible educator. And at that time, when he was doing muscle activation techniques, he was working with Ben, and then Ben disappeared from Toronto, and he's in Tampa, and then I see you and a couple other people there, and then fast forward, and now you're crushing N1. I mean, if you don't, I mean, what happened there, man? Because, I mean, it looks like you're doing amazing stuff. Uh, and, yeah, it seemed like you came out of nowhere and you're taking the world by storm. <laughs> yeah, so the short of it was I kind of built myself up through the corporate fitness to the point where I was no longer really loving the job as much, right? Like the paycheck got better, but it was like moving me away from what I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. And so I decided that I wanted to, you know, spend more time on my education. And I actually, I caught a lecture of Charles Poliquin on, it was, I think it was like meeting of the minds from like 2008 or something like that. And Charles was there, Tom Purvis was there, Paul Check, like basically, I mean, the who's who of when we were when we were young um, in terms of influence, like if I wouldn't, you know, they'd probably like roll over in their graves if I used the term influencer, you know, for them now. Um, but that's, I mean, that's what they were then, right, is they were our influencers before there was social media and whatnot. Um, and so I saw that it was like, I want to go start taking these courses. And then the bug just caught me and I just kept taking courses and courses and courses. And then eventually I got the reputation where I was actually starting to train the coaches that were coming to the courses that I was meeting. And at one of those courses, I happened to meet Ben. Um, and Ben and I actually like did not get along at all. Um, I like, I think I was the only one in the group that probably had the cojones to challenge the like giant meathead, uh, that was there. Um, and lo and behold, he ended up asking me to do some work for him on his blood work, on his labs and stuff like that. Cause I, at that point in time, I had gotten a little bit of a functional medicine background. And then after I got him good results with that, he asked if I would start looking at his nutrition and then it became say, Hey, will you do my nutrition leading up to the show? And then it became, Hey, will you start doing some of my, you know, writing some training for me? And then it became, Hey, uh, I want to open up a gym or whatever. Uh, you know, you should come down here and we should open a, a gym together. Um, and that kind of spurred from the fact that I was looking to do that same thing in Iowa. And the, the girl I was seeing at the time had kind of nudged me, you know, to say, Hey, look, I was always going to have a glass ceiling for you. Right. I mean, I mean, if you've been through the Midwest, right, the people and the farm animals are not too differently shaped. Fitness is not necessarily the culture as you get towards the more center of the U.S. Now, I think it's, you know, it's changing compared to when I was younger. But I mean, the Midwest is always a little behind culturally than the two coasts are. So there was a there was a big limiter there in terms of, you know, I'd kind of outgrown the, the pond that I was in. And so I was like, all right. We'll, we'll try this thing. And then I ended up down in Florida at uh, the MI40 gym there. And yeah, I don't know if you really want to go into that, but I mean, it didn't work out very well. And that's what then led me to leaving and starting N1. Basically, I mean, the long and short of it is, is it was just a bad business relationship. Um, you know, a lot of things that I thought were going to happen didn't happen. A lot of people got uh, mistreated or, you know, didn't ended up on the very, very short end of the stick that they shouldn't have. And ultimately I wasn't able to pursue the, 
I wasn't able to pursue what I wanted to in terms of like really innovating the field. I, you know, I had a lot of anchors on me. Um, and so I was like, all right, probably the only way that I'm going to be able to do this the way I want to do it is to just have sole control and to just let my passion be my driver. Awesome. Yeah. And then you know what, and I know you and I have talked about some of that in the past and I appreciate even going there and hope you don't mind the question, but I think that the, you know, from the ashes rise a Phoenix, so to speak, that I really like that idea that you go through this experience, uh, be it perhaps not positive, negative in some regard, and then come through this and now in a whole new iteration, which is just, I think a really unique thing. Um, on that note, it kind of brings up two different questions I have. And, uh, I mean, one kind of off the heels of this is, I mean, ultimately, regardless of where you were somewhere and you'd invested all your resources and time into a location. Uh, you put all your time and you tried to make this thing great and it just didn't work out. And then you're going off and you're starting off on your own. I mean, talk about the entrepreneurial side of things, which is I was really excited to talk to you. Um, I mean, for you, what kind of things did you find really helped you sink your heels into the ground to start building this new business? And is there any wisdom you could share around that experience to people looking at doing something similar in any type of business? Well, two things I'll preface there is when people ask me this story, um, one thing I will say is, is like, well, I don't think I did a very good job of it. So just was, as I give the example, just remember that, like I stayed there probably way, way, way too long, right? And waited way, way too long to um, take action on things. And the other is always look at your perspective because I think, you know, I was in the situation where my value I could take with me because my value is essentially my intellect and my knowledge at that point in time. So it's not like, I, like basically wherever I went, I could take that. So when you're looking at jumping out as an entrepreneurship, you have to look at, all right, what are the assets that I'm actually, you know, that I'm able to take and contribute, whether that be financial assets, whether that be material assets, or whether it's just like, hey, I have all of this stuff in my head that has value and I can sell that to people. I could present and help people with that information. Um, and so I was fortunate enough that I had something that didn't cost me a lot to move and then start to distribute. Right. And now we live in the age where it's like, man, to be able to share information over the internet is so easy. And it's so the, the barrier of entry to being able to do that as a business is so easy. And so I, chose the approach of what what could I get the highest ROI out of right and that was like all right we're gonna do an online course and that's that's how I started because I left you know we'll say a very in a very bad situation in terms of financial assets and material assets but I had an abundance of intellectual assets so I was like okay how can I leverage this I was like all right we will just start with an online course and then use that to gain capital to then do all of the other things that we want to do, right? So it started very simple and then it grew to a larger website and then we added a membership site on there and, you know, then we got lab equipment, right? And now we're building an app and opening a headquarters. So it's like, you just have to figure out, you know, how can I get an ROI out of what value that I bring and I offer, right? Where somebody else might have, a tremendous financial investment that they could put in to push things forward. Somebody else might have accrued all of this material stuff, um, or you might have a team of people that have different intellectual specialties, and so you can you can have a more, we'll say, cohesive system to start. Whereas I kind of had to start with, all right, I have information that will suit a specific niche of people, 
and I just need to I just need to do that so that I can get the ball rolling. So I didn't my the first course that I created wasn't a beginner course. It was hey, here's the course for the people that are actually already the most interested in what I do. They're the people that are already following me. They're the people that have come to my stuff or whatever. It's like what can I do to capitalize on that, you know, and help them further, and then use that return to then start helping people that aren't as familiar with what I did. So so now we've you know, we started in the middle with like an advanced programming course that's really depth in, in depth in physiology, you know, cell biology and all that other stuff that, you know, most people don't even think of. But now we've reduced it down to we start with like basic anatomy at the entry point. Right. And then we go deep advanced in terms of, you know, looking at labs and stuff for assessment. So we're able to grow in, in both directions over time. So I'm rambling in there a little bit, but I would say the biggest advice that I can give is just figure out what you can leverage of yourself um, and take advantage of that first because I think when it comes to entrepreneurship, even though the de definition of an entrepreneur is basically somebody that takes risks, right? Your goal should be to still minimize those risks, right? To not, not take unnecessary risk. And I think that's something that kind of gets lost in the, you know, just hustle and don't be afraid to failure like things that we hear is yeah. I think too many people just throw caution to the wind and go. And I don't think that's very good advice. I think you should be as cautious as possible. And so, but take the risk, but make sure it's an educated risk when you take it, not just to like, well, you know, failures and learning experience. So who cares? Let's just do it. Right. I think, I think that is, I think that is sometimes the message that people take away. And I did the absolute opposite approach. I did things slow, cautiously. And I was like, all right, this is the lowest risk possible, highest reward that I can do to dig myself out of this hole and start moving in the right direction again. And I, and I love that. I think that's an interesting thing because I know I've talked to a lot of different business folks and there's like, you got to throw all the money into the pot to get paid advertising going and get that fire going, but you spend tens of thousands of dollars up front and you might not get anywhere if your offer is not good. And I know, as you just described, I mean, you put that one program out there, you had an immediate audience. Um, I mean, going back to grassroots, because now you're in a position where you've built enough notoriety that if you put a program out there, it seems that it's sold within a day or so, which is fantastic. Going back to the original inception of you putting a program out there, um, how hands-on were you? Or did you always have people helping with that audience growth and then conversion? So I've done pretty much the majority of the stuff myself. And I mean, I, let, let, let's just play a game here. How much do you think I've invested in marketing total in the almost four years we've been in business? Ooh, uh, that's tough. I would just, I guess. mean, I'm a, I want to throw like maybe 20 or 30,000 bucks into it. Yeah. Not even close. Not even close. I, we have, we're probably under five. Wow. Just all organic. Yep. Yes. Awesome. Yep. Good for you guys. And now I'm not saying that is the way to do it. That's just the way that I, I chose to do it because essentially like, and you will probably see as our, as our business starts to evolve, this is what we will start utilizing marketing more. Um, but what I wanted to do is I wanted to make sure that like our products were, you know, and our system was so good that by the time we invested on advertising that we would be getting a tremendous ROI. Um, and so the perfectionist, perfectionist in me is like, all right, it's not good enough yet. I don't want to spend ad spend on this yet because 
I think, you know, I think it can do better. I think our website can be better. The funnel can be better or whatever. So let's just focus on like getting people in as close to organic as possible. So the majority of that marketing budget is simply things like boosting posts that were popular on social media. And what little would be is just that we would have a time sensitive event is like, maybe we would run like a small ad for live events. But in terms of the online business, like to this day, I have not run an ad for our membership site or the programs or, you know, any of those things, right? Like only pretty much live events and just some, you know, just some random boosted posts, which if anything, is just as much as me trying to, you know, play around and see how things work. Right. It's like, Hey, you know, let's see. I mean, does Instagram, you know, hate me a little less if I spend just a little bit of money with them, you know, and, for a while there, that definitely seemed like it's like, even if it was like five bucks, it's like, if I just put five bucks on this post, it just seems like they're a little nicer to all of my other content. Right. right. Um, so there's like, it's like, all right, just, just trying to play the game a little bit. But as we move on as our app launches here, we're going to now, now that we have capital and now that the quality of our product is better, we will go, we like, we will jump into the marketing realm. Like, um, Cody, who is basically our CTO and one of the, you know, the guys that handles a lot of the technology stuff behind the scene now, you know, he's working with now a dedicated marketer to have a plan for coming in 2022. So basically that's, things will start changing. We're going to, we're going to try it because I don't, I'm not against marketing. I'm just, I just wanted to make sure that when we did invest that money, that we would get the highest ROI out of it. Right. Cause I was like, Hey, I would rather spend. 50 grand on this lab setup and just continually make our content better Mm -hmm. right and and try and gain credibility than i would to spend 50k on ads right and get people in and maybe not have those people for as long a term of customers or whatever or not be able to deliver the level that i wanted to because it's like i when people come here when, when somebody you know takes an m1 course I want that to be a life-changing experience that is something they hold on to. I don't want it to be like, oh, yeah, it was a fun weekend or whatever. And then, you know, a couple months later, they just go to the next thing and they just keep doing whatever is the newest thing. And I think that's a big difference in our students is our students as they bounce around and they take other courses or whatever. They tend to like we tend to be like the center that they always come back to and the principles that they always apply. And I don't think that would have happened if our teaching experience wasn't as good and we just mass produced it. Interesting. So I'd love to ask you about that because you bring up an interesting thing that I've personally struggled with and I'd love to hear your your wisdom around this and your perspective is that I've taken a lot of different courses from a lot of different folks, learned some really incredible things that has directly influenced the business that I'm sitting over top of right now. And I'm really grateful for that. Through that, through my own research and learning about different things, I've developed a couple courses that I've taught and had a lot of success with But I always find that of all these different programs, I have a hard time identifying what content that I've learned is original and, you know, learned and a part of what part that I, what information I take from the other courses and learn more about study and then try to refine to put into a program for you. You've studied so many different things regarding, I mean, functional medicine. You have the research background with the peptides you regarded. I know you talk about mechanics a lot. There's so many different things. Um, with all those certifications and education that you've taken, uh, in your personal opinion and for someone else, how well do you have to study a piece of information before going on and becoming an educator for that information, if that question makes sense? Yeah. 
Well, I don't think you can say it's just how long that you study it. I think you have to apply it, right? Um, because a big part of being able to teach is knowing something so well that you can communicate it to people that don't think like you think. Um, and that's, I think that's the biggest challenge, but that's also another thing that requires a little bit of experience. So the, what I would say is, is like, okay, you have to know the information front and back so that you can rearticulate it in multiple ways, right? So that's what you need before you start sharing that information with anybody. And that, that includes like a client, right? So a lot of trainers or whatever, they'll go to a course and they come back and they just immediately start unloading all of the new stuff onto their person, like not knowing if they really needed it or not. Just like, well, guess what? Your program's changing because I suffered through this at this course. So now you're right. doing six, twelve, twenty-five for your, you know, whatever, whatever it is, right? Just, you know, like some awful, you know, pukish thingy that they learned. Right. Um, so, I think you got to go through the phase of you got to know the information front to back, right? So that you could basically articulate it, you know, well, but then you have to actually go through that process of being able to apply that articulation, that communication. And the best thing to do is to start with the smallest audience possible, right? Because if you only have to figure out if you're communicating to one person, then that's really simple, right? But if you're standing in a room of 50 people, that's a much more challenging experience, not just to be able to communicate in a way that 50 different people with different backgrounds can all resonate with and understand, but also being able to read that audience and know whether or not you're actually doing a good job or not. Right. And, you know, kind of figuring out for yourself, like, what are my expectations? Like if I'm speaking in a, if I'm speaking in front of 50 people and it's a high level topic, you know, what, what level of understanding do I expect to have, right? Because do I lower what I'm delivering to the lowest common denominator in the room, right? Or is there an avatar in there that I'm trying to deliver maximum value and I can't take the responsibility for people that just were not prepared for that information? I can't lower the quality for my avatar down to somebody else like and I think that's where the responsibility of like well when you do do marketing or when you do you know advertise your product or you know write up your product is that you are as specific as possible about who it's for and then that makes your job as an educator easier and you can also kind of like you can kind of be a little bit more ethically responsible of like look this is what I said I was going to deliver and if you came to that not being in a position to accept that right I can't make everybody else sacrifice, you know, in terms of what they're going to learn to help the people that came in unprepared, because that's a constant battle as an educator of kind of figuring out, all right, you know, do I help the mass? Do I slow it down for that one person that's not getting it? Or do I raise it up to like the few like geniuses in the class or whatever? Mm -hmm. And I think this is where it's like not letting the audience dictate that. And really, as you start to learn the stuff and you start to practice your communication, understand who are you good at speaking to, right? And then try and make sure you get a room full of them because it's your responsibility that if you're going to deliver a product that it's for a set of people, it's not to get as many people in the room. It's to get the right people in the room because if you get the right people in the room, you deliver the best service. You deliver the best outcome and that, that will save you on marketing right there because you will actually get the best feedback you know, and you will get the best word of mouth advertising from them versus if you just try and jam as many people in there but only a percentage of them got a really good experience that could actually work against you in terms of how, you know, that how the public opinion or, you know, the reviews of what your information are. 
I mean, that's such an interesting thing you said at the end there, because I 100% agree with the avatar thing. But from all the teachings I've done, I always made it like, I don't know if it was a personal challenge or I felt it was responsibility that if I had a group of 20 people and I was talking, like I've got a course called Post-Activation Potentiation Preparation, big mouthful, mm -hmm. terrible marketing name. But for the people that are in the group, I'd have people at very different academic levels. Some were trainers that are just getting into it and are interested in diving into the more advanced uh, evolution of things. And then people who are quite advanced that are looking to reframe their mindset and challenge themselves and I always took it as a bit of a responsibility that I would I would teach my content but I also took it as a bit of a point of pride to be able to shift my communication to speak to the lowest common denominator and then the highest common um, so are you saying for you with your avatars that if you have a group of 20 people and 70% of the people in the room have come through the right marketing channels and be the right avatar that you, you focused on speaking to them because from there there will be exponential growth well Yes, there will be more growth because you're delivering the best you're delivering the best experience to the majority of people, right? Because there's never going to be a situation where you can deliver the best experience to everybody if you have a very diverse room. That's and that's why the key to being successful is doing as much work as possible to try and make sure that everybody that like comes to your event or that takes your course is a good candidate for the course, right? Um, and that's why, you know, being able to expand the library of information you have is really valuable. So like if you come to one of our live events, you also will have had online content before that, right? And part of that is, is, is that an extension of making sure that everybody that's sitting in that classroom is closer to being on the same page and closer to being on the same level, right? Because I can always put out more and like I can always put out more online information more prerequisite material and give people the best opportunity and help me ensure the best up you know the best possible chance that the majority of the people in that room are going to be ready they are going to be as close to that avatar as possible and then I can deliver the best experience to them um, but that's something that takes time and it's a learning period too because basically every event that we have we audit okay how did it go what was the most challenging thing for people what do we need to do to resolve that? So I don't think that in the you know the years that I've been teaching that I've ever taught the same event twice. Like e even though it's like we try and keep it as standardized as possible because we're always trying to improve, it always changes a, a little bit, right? So I mean I'll know that we're doing a really really good job when we stop changing it so much, and I think we're 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 getting ready to break that curve right now with a with a live event. Um, but I know that you know we still we still have room for we still have room for improvement. But I think the best thing I can say in terms of the takeaway here is you're always going to have the most success teaching to the people that are most ready for that information. So just do your due diligence to try and make sure that the people that are in front of you are those people, right? Rather than just trying to get as many people in as possible. It may not be as much ROI on the front end, but I think it will be much more ROI on the back end, both not just from like that you will grow better because you'll be getting better feedback from your students, but also I think that for your sanity and your stress levels and whatnot, that it will, it will, it will allow you to be better at your aspect, be on your game and dedicate more of your time to other areas of growth in the business because you're not going to be constantly trying to shovel shooting or not going to be constantly shifting what you're doing to accommodate too wide of a range of people. Yeah. Well, one of the things we say to our, all the gyms that go through our program is you don't speak to everyone, speak to someone. And I think you said the same thing in there, which I just love that. Um, 
I want to I shift research and some questions about some design stuff with you, but I want to ask you this because you said it a couple of times. Who is your client avatar? So, well, for the, the question would be for what course now because we have multiple offerings, right? So, that's, so, so we're at the point now where we can have multiple avatars, but they have to enter the system at the correct point, right? So, for instance, our biomechanics course, right, that's not necessarily, you know, I wouldn't say it's for somebody that has never done anything. Right. It's usually going to be for somebody that has either been training for a while or, you know, they're um, they're educated to the point where they've been doing traditional exercise and they're looking to optimize exercise. So they aren't they, sometimes you'll get somebody in a course. It's like, I don't think this person has lifted a dumbbell before. Right. And it's like, OK, so I don't think that we're at the point yet where we need to worry about, you know, separating the different divisions of the pack when it's like, OK, why don't we just learn how to stabilize load in space when it's what's not a machine so we're we're looking at those people that are looking to add that nuance of optimized exercise selection you know and optimized training execution you know beyond traditional lifts per se right so they're ready to make that progression to being more specific or the same thing from their coaching principles and then you know in terms of our program design standpoint it's kind of the same thing it's like okay we're looking for the people that are ready to see it more than sets and reps and volume landmarks or whatever they're like looking to see is like, Oh, so I could do a program and it would have a different physiological response or a program. This program would have a different physiological response in two different people, even though it's the same program for the people that are looking to go to that nuance. That's what our program design course is for. Very cool, man. Very cool. And you got some really interesting stuff. And so you you have this research background from before you started doing all this coaching. And I know that I've seen from some of the content um, that you got, you're playing around with Moxies and you've got uh, service EMGs and a few other systems that you've been playing with. I mean, where did you learn how to do all that stuff and what's the end game with it? Well, the stuff that I'm doing now, uh, I've had to learn as we go. Um, because my experience before was from more of a biochemistry background, right? So, right. So that, that really doesn't help when you're now using, you know, Moxie and force gauges and, you know, EMG sensors. So I knew, knew the science behind it. Um, you know, and there was basically a little bit of work into trying to figure out, okay, how do these devices work? What, what would be their potentials for error? Um, and then just actually doing training with the manufacturers themselves on, you know, getting proficient with the devices. And then we took it upon ourselves to be like, all right, so we see what's currently done in the research. Like we can read the methods or whatever we can, you know, hear from the manufacturer in terms of how people are doing things. But then from our unique background in terms of biomechanics and physiology, it's like, can I figure out what possible flaws there would be in these protocols? And can we actually try and test to see if we can reduce the amount of those flaws that are in the protocols. Like for instance, most EMG studies, you know, they look at the muscle that they're focusing on and they might measure that maybe one or two things other, but like oftentimes it's like, okay, did it, did, did the MVIC go up or down? Like, you know, and that's like the extent of what we get. Um, and we're like, yeah, that's not going to be, that's not going to be really usable data for the answers that we're looking to find. Um, so it's like, all right, so the only way that we're going to be able to do that is we have to measure every possible synergist at the same time. And then we have to use a reporting system that basically helps us account for like different loading magnitudes or different 
effort magnitudes, meaning that the way that we do it, if we're looking to see if a muscle is more or less biased, it can be, it can be data from, you know, a light set of eight or, you know, a heavy set of four or a death set of 20, that the biases will be the same when we train it, right? And when we do different exercises that maybe there's like a, a change in leverage, right? Which would affect like, oh, like because there's a higher peak loading point at this, in the, somewhere in this exercise when you compare it to that exercise, that could throw off the peak values of MVICs. But because we use what's called like a coordination report, report where it's looking at the ratios of all these muscles simultaneously, we can kind of account for that change in loading not being a factor. It's like, okay, we'll still get good information, even though these two exercises are not mechanically loaded the same. But if I was just doing, you know, a, a good example is um, you take something like a, like a sumo squat, right? To just stand in the sumo position requires you to kind of hold a contraction, right? Like if you're at home listening to this or whatever, if you just like externally rotate your hips and try and stand up straight, you notice that you you have to hold your glutes just to do that because you're kind of in a, like a almost a joint jammed hyperextended hip position. So automatically, if we were just compared standing, it would say, wow, that's way more, that's a way better glute position. But really we're just putting in a position where you have to now hold that contraction. So to compare that to a lift where when somebody stands up, they don't have to be holding all of those, they don't have to be holding that contraction just posturally. That's going to, that's going to drastically change the average MVIC of that lift, right? When in reality, if you're in a, that externally rotated position, if you're doing this little drill, I'm trying to illustrate, if you just lean forward a little bit, you'll notice that even though now that we've kind of, you know, we're hinging that the glutes would actually shut off because they're not having to hold that hyperextension position anymore. So being able to like account for those things allows us to do a much better job than I would say what we get, you know, when it's just a, a grad student that, you know, maybe they're going into, maybe they're an exercise science grad or something, but they don't have, they have no understanding of biomechanics, you know, or very little. And so they're just applying these exercises, not realizing there's all of these other little things that they should be accounting for when they're looking at and developing a protocol that can help them overcome that. Interesting. No, I wanted on, on that point, you were talking about like through the research, um, using these different modalities to identify like a, a um, division of muscles or particular muscles that are more biased um, within a particular joint sequence. Could you be more specific with that? I'd love to hear more about that. Yeah. So I'll just give you the quick rundown of, of what we do for that. Right. So essentially what we do is we start with uh, we start with a biomechanical model. So we say, OK, we're going to look at the short head of the biceps and we're going to try and figure out, all right. If we just look at modeling the mechanics, what does it look like the fully shortened and fully lengthened position of that muscle would be? How could we how could we get it there? All right. And, we, you know, we go through a couple different models trying to figure that out. Um, and then we use uh, a bit of a, like a neurological muscle testing to kind of audit, you know, our decisions there. It's I would say it's kind of similar to what you would look at in like your MAT background, but just a little bit more specific to these positions. Um, and once we've kind of narrowed that down, then we look at using the surface EMG. And so basically what we do is to say, okay, well, this position should be, if I move from the estimated lengthened position to the estimated short position, that should make the short head of the biceps the best logical solution of taking the arm through that position or working in that position because it has the most direct pull, it's the most efficient. And we, we have, you know, from all of the data, 
we kind of know that the nervous system isn't going to make your body do more work than it needs to. It's going to find the path of least resistance. It's going to contract things in the most energy conservative way. So it's going to use the tissue that has the least conflicting forces at other joints, right? And has the most direct force, you know, that you're focusing on. So when we do that coordination report and it looks at all of the muscles that could even remotely participate in this movement, we would expect that, all right, if we deviate from that movement, the ratio would now shift. So basically, then we can test the other things that we modeled that we didn't think were true. And then we can test things that are common. And then we can also test it against another muscle that we think would be very biased. So I can test the short head of the bicep position versus what we think the long head bicep position is and see that there's a huge shift. And then we can look at things that are in between and see if we don't actually see like this almost like gradient of, well, as I go closer to the shoulder position for the long head of the bicep, that it moves in, like gradually there. And as I go to the position for the short head, that it moves gradually there. And what I'll tell you guys is it's not linear. It's kind of more of like, it's like in the middle, there's a mix. And then when you get towards a specific position, there's a huge jump in, in the bias. It's not like a linear graph. It's more kind of like a U-shaped curve. If you would think of like, all right, when I'm really close to the short head position, it's a lot of biased, you know, and that bias drops off really fast as I get out of that. And then it kind of becomes a much more compensatory movement until I get close to the extreme of another position's path. And then all of a sudden that thing then becomes much more dominant uh, in the motion. So that's kind of our process. Uh, and then we throw the moxie on there in exercises that are applicable and try and see if we can get a confirmation on that too, that if like we would get the fastest and most efficient, you know, blood oxygen consumption doing it in those path of motions. But the moxie is not as precise because like with an EMG, as long as the muscles on the surface, we can, we can usually isolate that fairly well with the moxie because it's just, it just, it's light that just shoots out into like a radius. So for certain tissues in certain areas of the body, you're just kind of limited uh, on like, like, is that data going to be useful? And it also kind of depends also in terms of like, if there's a major artery or vein or something that's like right also in that area, whatever. So we use the moxie as much as possible. And what we're able to do is kind of confirm our system more than we are able to confirm every single muscle by having those overlapping technologies. So if it's like, if all of these things tend to be lining up consistently, then we can be a little bit more confident in the protocols that we're using for each individual step, if that makes sense. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, and I'm, I'm you, you got a lot you're coming out with, man. So I'm trying to keep up because there's some stuff in here that these are perspectives I haven't heard. So pardon, if some of these questions are, are small, but I mean, when you're talking about biases and shifting from the short head and the long head, when it comes to like a resistance training perspective and you're loading, I mean, uh, if you're grabbing a dumbbell or grabbing a cable, and if, even if you get things lined up in a way that would line up with the short head and or long head particular of a bicep, more one so or the other, when you're talking about that with your students in, uh, in your biomechanics program, is that bias recognition to speak on behalf of what adaptation will happen? Or is it for program? Like, I think that's where I'd love to learn a little bit more is that if we've got these two things that are beside one another and they're really close, if we stimulate one, um, from my understanding, at least from a hypertrophic perspective, there may not be that massive of a difference, or at least if there were, it might not, I mean, it's, it's going to be hypertrophy. I mean, maybe I'm off base here, but does that make sense? So, all right, so two things to consider there. All right, so one is, remember I said that the bias shift 
is kind of neutral in the middle if you're in an ambiguous position, but it becomes very high when we get like basically when you get that position perfect or you get very, very close to it. So this is why you have to be careful with like, okay, well, the hypertrophy research says exercise one and exercise two don't really show much of a difference. If both of those two exercises exist somewhere in the middle, then we wouldn't expect to see that, right? So you just got to be careful when we look at anything that's comparing exercises in terms of researches. All we can extrapolate from that is that these two exercises were not different enough. It doesn't mean that it was physically impossible to bias those tissues. It just means those the exercises that they used weren't far enough apart. Um, and we'll, we'll look at that two ways. But one is um, you have to think of it as like, in order for me to have a huge shift in bias, what needs to happen is is that I need to make the threshold for one thing be so high that that, or I should say so low, that when that thing fails, that my ability to execute or stabilize that movement in the same form, technique, or whatever is now diminished. So if we look at this as very simple, like think of, think of a leg press, right? If you put your feet in the middle and you just do the press, and we measured your quads, it's going to be like, well, okay, your quads did X. And if you move them down a little bit, your quads on an EMG will be like, oh, yeah, they still they still did work. Like moving them lower did not do much. Um, it's only when you move them so high that now the hip extension component of the leg press would actually fail pre like before the quads failed that we would actually see that change. So anything that doesn't meet that threshold will essentially read the same all the way from like doing like a sissy like leg leg extension -y leg press like super feet low and you keep bringing your feet high it'll be like oh it's the same it's the same move them wider oh it's the same it's the same same until all of a sudden something else becomes the limiter right so you have to base the exercises have to be so extreme per se that something else now becomes the limiter so that's where you could say well these things seem very very similar and they are like we'll use the bicep example, like those are very similar at the elbow, but they're not very similar at the shoulder, right? One of them is an adductor, one of them is an abductor, right? One, like they're both flexors, but one is a flexor only to like the mid chest and the other is a flexor like up in the scapular plane, like over your head. So when we're looking at a two joint muscle, you have to take into account, well, what's the force vector at both of those muscles? Because what's going to happen is in order to use the short head to its maximal capacity and keep the shoulder in some sort of like mid range position, like arm in front of you position, something has to be resisting the force that that short head has at the shoulder. So if the, if the short head, of the bicep would normally want to, you know, rotate and adduct the arm a little bit, something has to be doing those opposite forces to negate that so that you can do the elbow flexion, right? And this is where the nervous system comes in and says, hey, what can I use that requires the least work to stabilize the other joint? So essentially what, what we show is, is that in these exercises where they're very, very biased and we're able to do it with very similar things is what happens is you actually position the arm in a place where the other joint, the forces become almost neutral, not zero because it's never zero. But essentially, when you're in the position for a short head bicep curl, you're, the short head of the bicep is going to have almost nothing but a traction force in the shoulder joint, meaning that there's, there's nothing to overcome 
in terms of an antagonist action at the shoulder. So it can just do elbow flexion with no limitation and no needed to compensate at the shoulder joint. So we have now made the cost of elbow flexion significantly cheaper by eliminating any extra work that needed to be done at the shoulder to stabilize or manage its position. Does that make sense? A bit. Yeah. Okay. I'm, I'm trying to, I'm trying to keep up. Okay. So, so with, the, with the bias stuff though, I mean, so when you're talking about, I mean, not, and I, and I think I may to come back to that. I mean, when you're talking about bias, are you meaning for like specific, like, is it, is it for specific adaptations or is it a program specific for you guys? Well, it's the bias means that you're just using more of that muscle. What the adaptation is depends on the training variables. Like, you know, how much load are you using? How many reps are you doing? How much rest are you doing? How close to failure are you going? Right? All of those things come into play, right? But bias just means that if you're in this position and you act on resistance, that you're going to use more of this tissue than the other tissues as long as possible, right? Until that tissue fatigues. And then, of course, you will start compensating out, right? And that's where it's like, okay, you'll see more synergistic action. But when you're in, when you're in these positions of extreme bias, and then you have to start compensate with those other things, it becomes much harder to manage those positions. So when you reach failure, it tends to be much more specific to that tissue. Mm. So if you're follow, if you're like a fan of the effective reps theory, you can think of, well, if this tissue started first and failed first and was actually the limit of the exercise, it's going to accumulate effective reps way more or earlier and it's going to accumulate more of them than any other tissues doing that exercise. Now, from an applied research standpoint, you do actually see that there are plenty of instances where they've been able to do good research and show that you can deviate in terms of hypertrophy results from muscles that are very, very similar. The example I always like to give is calves. I actually just posted it today. Um, so mm, 2019, um, they did a study on the different foot positions, you know, you, you probably heard that, you know, for years and years. And then, you know, you go to a biomechanics course that doesn't focus on the, the nuances and they say, Oh, the ankle, you just do it forward and back. And it doesn't matter because the gastroc and the soleus don't rotate the foot or whatever. And then you've realized, well, but they did it in an applied study and the people that had the toes in got more lateral gastroc hypertrophy and the people that had the toes out had more medial gastroc hypertrophy and the people that had their toes straight got less hypertrophy uh, or they got hypertrophy in both but they didn't get the magnitude as the biased version so the the toes straight forward even though it got hypertrophy in both heads it didn't get as much of the lateral head as the toes in group and it didn't get as much as the outer head or the medial head and the uh sorry medial head and and toes out and lateral head and toes in and then when we look at when we look at the anatomy and mechanics a little deeper we can see that oh well if we're actually trying to lengthen those portions of the gastroc differently that the lateral head actually comes down and you know it's more fused with the outer two toes right and the medial head is more fused with the second and middle toe and your soleus is more fused with the big toe so by pointing your toes in and putting basically the load of a leg press on the outside of your foot or the load of a calf press, whatever it is, if you point your toes in, the, the outside of your foot gets shoved up more and more force goes into the outside of your foot. Therefore, that gastroc gets a little bit more. And if your toes are pointed out, then the inside of your foot bears a little bit more blunt and gets pushed up a little bit more. And that there was enough to get a difference in hypertrophy, a measurable significant difference in hypertrophy between the two heads of the gastroc, which are more similar 
than the two heads of the biceps in terms of their anatomy and line of pull. It's interesting. I mean, I, I I'm trying. I'm gonna have to go back and re-listen to the things you said here because there's so much stuff. But uh, it, I like it. It's interesting to hear because I mean, from back when I was getting into bodybuilding when I was younger, I mean, we had all these exercises that you know, and the colloquialisms around the wide grip pull down is for this, and the narrow grip pull down is for mm-hmm. this. And then uh, learning a little bit more. I mean, I definitely have a much more like broader systematicity approach where I'm looking at the entire system um, operating operating concurrently, um, just based off of you know, you got lots of different muscles stacked on top of a joint system. And then what you're sharing, I mean, the separation uh, is is kind of similar to the old school mindset, so to speak, but with a, a new flair and more research as you're regarding like for iliac division, lumbar division, thoracic division, the lats and stuff like that. So based off of that, I mean, and I, please send any research here's, you have because I'd love to see that. Here's the, here's the challenge that I would say or that I would give you is, is that try and be okay with the fact that both things are true. Sure. Both yeah. things, because in a lot of, in a lot of instances and positions, it is kind of like, you know, everybody on board that can help because it's a lot of movements may not be specific to a specific muscles path of motion. Right. So in a lot of instances, that is the case where it's just like, yeah, this works a, a variety of tissues because, you know, it doesn't follow the specific arc or path of motion of any one tissue. But that doesn't take away that if we did follow the path of motion of a specific tissue, that we could bias it, right? So both both of those worlds exist at the same time. They're just contextually dependent on the actual movement. It's interesting. I know, and yeah, and, I, and that makes I can see where that makes sense for sure. I just think that it's it's so interesting that I mean, if you take a larger group of muscles, so larger group of muscles like lat. Um, mm-hmm. for a long time when I was talking to Peter more so, I mean, he would talk about, and it made sense to me that when the lat would hypertrophy, it, it was, it was tough to have that muscle grow in any one particular position. It was just that that was one big muscle. And when it hypertrophies, it hypertrophies and you just got your, this particular shaped water balloon and it would swell based off of your geometry, genetics and whatnot. Um, with this stuff that you're seeing, do you think that you can change the shape of how a muscle le- looks when it hypertrophies and for a bodybuilder? Cause I mean, for a casual lifter may not make a big difference, but for a bodybuilder, do you think that could be a big difference? Yeah. And, and we've seen it and the lats are a great example. I mean, we've had everybody from, you know, you know, newbies to people that are on the Olympia stage change the look, right. Have a noticeable difference the next year and all of a sudden have a look to their lats that they did not have in all the prior years of training. And we're saying with the pharmaceutical assistance, you know, as well, you know, it took actual direct training of those tissues to actually get them to hypertrophy significantly. Now, there's never going to be, um, this is never going to be like, it has to be that way because they're, I mean, the best example is, is that you look at some people that grow muscles that they don't train, you know, like, like, they're just like, they're those people that like, oh yeah, how'd you grow those arms loading the leg press? That's how I, that's, that, that, that's how my forearms got this big, right? It's like, oh, look at your thumbs. They're huge. What's the, you know, like, so, I mean, like, um, like a guy like Flex Lewis is an example, right? Like you look at Flex Lewis or an athlete like that, like, you know, um, and he's just got like all of his muscle bellies just pop and he's just like, man, things exist on you that don't exist on other people. Cause like you, you need barely any stimulus, right? You know, like carrying your bag to the gym, like gets you as much of a stimulus as it does somebody else doing 10 years of training. Um, so in those people, you could argue, it's like, well, do they need that? 
And then the question is, it's like, well, it depends on how high their goal is, right? Um, because if you have great genetics, do you need to go to this specificity to probably look better than the average person on the beach? Probably not. But do you need that level of specificity to beat the other person with good genetics that is that you're competing against at the top level? Absolutely. And then conversely, if you're the person that has really, really poor genetics, right, or maybe has a history of very, we'll say, like, we'll say limited activity where you've done a ton of a certain activity and not much of another, in those instances, those people can dra also drastically value from having that level of specificity, right? So really specificity, you know, just comes down to the individual and the goal and whether or not they, they need it at that point in time, right? So, I mean, if you want to take a broader example, it's like, well, hey, should you squat for leg growth? And it's like, well, if you've never done anything before and you're perfectly capable of squatting and you're like your stimulus threshold is super low, a squat may be a great way to train everything right? And you could get some results. If you're super advanced, you know, you've been training for a bunch of years, that might not be practical because you can't get much, you can't get the same stimulus out of your quads without just totally trashing yourself and like not being able to maintain training frequency or whatever. Or, you know, maybe you're just not built, you know, to squat very balanced for quads. So once you get to a certain level of, you know, growth and hypertrophy, it's like, oh, now I'm going to need to find something that challenges the quads a little bit more, or I'm just going to keep developing butt and adductors, you know, in my squat. It's funny you mentioned the genetics thing. Cause I had a training buddy I worked out with and he was this, this Dutch fella who had wide, wide shoulders and a tiny, tiny waist. And I had skinny guy drummer syndrome where I did not look good. I got big legs from playing hockey, but nothing upstairs. So I tried to copy his workout. It didn't work. So I asked this fella back in the day when the GH growth hormone from doing squats and deadlifts was a popular conversation. And I said, Hey, big fella, uh, I want to get bigger arms. What do I do? He goes, squat and deadlift more. I'm like, what? You got to squat and deadlift more? You're going to get the growth hormone. Your arms will just grow. And so being naive, I was like, okay. So I did more of it. And of course, what happened, my legs just got bigger and I couldn't find any freaking pants. It was insane. So I, it's an interesting thing. But yeah, no, I really, I would love to see more of the research you guys are doing around this stuff because I think uh, I haven't heard any of this perspective and I think it's super cool, man. I appreciate it a lot. Yeah. And I would say in defense to Peter, like, um, we've had to we've had to go back and kind of redo the the anatomy information right like so we teach anatomy and like the way we teach um is different than in, in a book right so basically like what we're doing from an anatomical perspective uh nobody else is using or has that like it doesn't exist like we've had to sit here like okay how many divisions of the internal obliques are there, right? Okay, the lateral head of the tricep. Why does it actually, why is it impacted by the shoulder position? If, you know, if you look at the, you know, you look at any textbook or whatever, and it'll just be like, oh, it just attaches to the humerus. It shouldn't be impacted by the shoulder. Um, and then you get into like the deepest weeds of anatomy, and then you start learning about the intermuscular septums that fuse the tendons of different muscles to each other and to the fascia and create shared origins across different tissues and stuff. And it's like, oh, so there's these whole other things that you just, that don't even exist if you've only learned anatomy at one level. And pretty much unless your profession is like working with cadavers or whatever, like you would never be exposed to that level of detail, right? Like unless your goal is like, oh, I'm a, I am do research in fascia or whatever, like you would never be exposed to those nuances to know that these things exist that actually end up being relevant to how we start positioning the body for these exercises.
Man, I got to be honest. I want to shift gears for one last question only because I yep. got to ask something else. And I don't want to take up too much of your time. But please, I mean, per selfishly, share anything around this stuff you got because I'd love to learn more about it for sure. I appreciate all your wisdom around this. So here's what I want to ask you. You've been designing. I got one of your things here. Uh, this uh, device is named after you even, the CAS handles, and you got a few of them. Yeah. And you've been really influential in the exercise equipment design category, uh, really, I, in my opinion, I think more so than anybody outside of like the garage gym scene. I mean, there's a lot of people who are influencing garage gym stuff, but as far as selector equipment goes and making things at home and gyms better, I mean, you really got your hands in there uh, outside of like the traditional engineering that most of these departments have. Um, and anyone who doesn't know what I'm talking about, check out Casm stuff because I mean, you have a million different things. Uh, I'm going to ask this and see what you throw back at me. Of all the things that you have had your fingers in and you have your fingers in, what is the one thing that you're helping design? And don't give me like a drill name or some utility you used to build your gym like you did before. What is one thing in the exercise equipment world that you're excited about that you're working on? So that isn't released yet? <laughs> that sure. I'm probably not allowed to talk about? <laughs> but whatever you um, want to talk about. Um, well, I, I would a product that that is not at our HQ yet that I'm the most excited for um, is the is the new design pull down coming from Prime, um, partly because it's been delayed like eight million times. So the suspense is definitely at like level 10, 10,000. Um, but, you know, when it comes to what you need machines for, like you need machines for, you know, good lower body exercises, but for upper body, it's like, man, with cables. I can do so much with cables and free weights, like for, for chest and for arms and like just set so many options. Um, but for lats, it's like, I can do the motions, but I don't, I don't have the ability to get that resistance profile I want and the motion that I want simultaneously with good stability. Like it's a lot easier to stabilize a chest exercise than it is a back exercise, especially when it comes to free weights and cables and whatnot. That's why, you know, if, if you do jump on my Instagram, the joke is that I have like 73 different ways to do the single arm pull down because it's like, Hey, depending on what equipment you're using or what you have access to, like you find the best way to stabilize that you can. Um, but so basically the new pull down, is going to give us the ability to train those motions unilaterally and bilaterally with, you know, a full chest support, you know, you're weighted down. Like, so there's no more dragging benches around the gym or any of that stuff. Um, and the, the chest support actually it tilts so you can, oh, cool. you can use it for, you know, so you can train at different angles. So you can do kind of more of a, you know, a, a lower pull, you know, or, what we're now calling like a row down, right? Which is like the halfway between a row and a pull down versus the like higher, like iliac pull down. So that's the thing I'm kind of most looking forward to. Um, tell me that the motion mass, tell me that the parallel motion mass matches the arm. Cause I know the prime one right now, they got some cool things, but it's the opposite. Tell me it matches. Yeah. Yes. yes. All right. Yes, I'm does, excited to right? see it. Yes. Yeah, so the pivot is the pivot is behind you. Thank right. God. Okay, so, cool. Yeah. Pivot behind you, support in front of you, long trailing arm, which is which is huge because that's what allows it to fit individuals and then the ability to move the seat and the chest pad. Like I mean, it's it's what you'd expect from an N one piece of equipment, right? Like it's made so that like whoever you put in there, you can you can target the tissue that you want, right? I'm excited. In term in terms of the stuff that is out, um, uh, the hack squat is, that we did with Atlantis. I think is a, is a big game changer um, because I mean, as much as a hack squat seems like it's a simple piece where, you know, it's like, you know, it's a sliding chair. Um, you'd be surprised at how, how much 
or how often it, they get screwed up um, or how many subtle things just make the user experience like not very good. Um, and we, like back at MI40, we had three hack squats and I didn't like any of them, right? At one point in time, we had, so we had, we, we, we went through two Watts and hat squats there. I didn't like either of them. Um, it's like my least favorite, but at one point in time, one of them was just sitting outside in the parking lot, like just getting rusty because it's like, yeah, this thing sucks so much. Like we all oh. collectively, we all disagreed that the gym would just be better if this was just an empty piece of floor and not this machine. Um, and so it went outside like that, that bad. Um, but the, like, if you're not familiar, I mean, you're from Canada, you're familiar with Atlanta stuff, right? They, I mean, they make really good quality, like overbuilt, very refined stuff. So when you added their quality into, you know, the features and adjustability that we wanted, like it's, it's just an, it's an amazing piece. And we just started getting a bunch of feedback out from that. And so I'm really, I'm really proud of that for two reasons. One is because, um, it's a, it's a piece that I really, really, I've really wanted to do for a long time. And for some, for whatever reason, like it just has not been the project that some of the other manufacturers picked up. Um, but also, uh, you know, I'm a long-term student of Charles and Charles is huge with Atlantis or whatnot. So, um, nice. and he, he, he did products with them or whatever. And so being able to kind of like step into those shoes, um, you know, kind of has a, there's a little bit of pride, you know, to do that, to be kind of following your mentor and being able to, you know, kind of do influence in some of the same ways that they did. Um, so I don't know. And like, the, I mean, but if you want to talk mass, man, those handles are everywhere. And the wedges, like the wet, the squat wedges are such a simple thing. It was just like, Hey, what if we took the big wedge and then we cut it up into little wedges so that it could match the actual angle of the foot? And now, like, I mean, you know, I will tell you guys, if you want good quality wedges, the solo wedges, by all means, buy the prime wedges. I don't make any money off of them, but they're really good quality. Um, but if you're just too stickler and you like saving bucks or whatever and you want to buy a cheaper product, like, th like those have been copied by like 60 different companies on like Amazon or whatever, right? So it's, it's one of those things where it's like, oh, I'm kind of disappointed that these people are all knocking off the, the, the product. But also it's like that's how big of an influence is, is that we've essentially like somewhere in some distant country, you know, in a sweatshop somewhere is somebody making generic wedges because one day I was like, hey, why don't we just why don't we do them like this? Um, and so like the 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 impact that we've had having it be that broad and it's like, oh, wow, like even those cast handles and a lot of the other things it's like this isn't just something that we decided to do. And then, you know, like, okay, cool. Like we made a product. It's like, this is so good that other people are copying these all over the place. Right. Yeah. Like we've actually, like we've created an, in, like we've created an industry out of people trying to innovate these things. Yeah. Right. And I think it's actually inspiring other people to try and do similar things, which I think is cool. I mean, that, you know, that's the whole thing. is like competition is competition is one of the best things for the industry. And so now, I think you're actually seeing a shift in the industry, both for small equipment, but also for large equipment, and that people are seeking innovative solutions. They're no longer like, oh, well, that thing is shiny and it's got like stitched padding or whatever. It's like, yeah, yeah. but, uh, you know, but does this adjust on it? You know, do the handles fit there? And they're like, oh, no, never mind, right? You know, like, yeah, I'm, I'm not trying to go off road in a Lamborghini here, right? Like, I need something that can, that can do the job. And I, I think that's one thing that I, I admire about you quite a bit is that regardless of your education properties in your business is that 
You know, I'm a huge Arthur Jones, old school uh, Nautilus fan and learning more about that stuff. I know there's limitations within those systems and I have other machines I've become big fans of. And it seemed that for about a decade or so more, 2000s to like maybe just recently, the selectorized equipment world and anything that wasn't just a barbell uh, was kind of vastly unexplored. And you, it seems like, have made a gigantic influence with companies like Prime that were small enough and open-minded open enough to start trying some of these ideas, had some success, and then concurrently, other people have really dived, like you just said, are starting to create stuff. And I think that it's created some exciting competition, but also giving us as gym owners and uh, other ideas. And I mean, you got so much stuff. I mean, I single-handedly have spent probably $3,500 on accessories because of you. And I know I've influenced right. the sale. That's all right. And I know I've influenced, uh, I mean, at least probably $20,000, not joking, in sales of just the prime trap bar because it's it's just incredible. I mean, as far as simple adjustments go um, with fun branding that make a huge difference for any level. I mean, here we don't work with a lot of bodybuilders. We work with a lot of people with lots of sensitive joint problems. And a lot of these accessories, even though you design them for higher performance have worked really, really well for some of the worst case scenario people that we work with. And so I really appreciate that. That's, that's the beauty of like teaching this anatomy and biomechanics stuff, right? Is, is that it can be applied all the way from the rehab to the most advanced athlete, right? Cause it's like, look, the bicep is the bicep, you know, like if, if we can find a way to make that better, great. Right. You know, Oh, heel elevation is, you know, it's like, okay these principles can apply to anybody like because it just it's just you know it's the way you do it right it's the loading threshold and the purpose that you do it but like all of these things that make things more biomechanically favorable or allow you to explore ranges and things you know or you know, be more stable that that literally can be used for any any person right and like i mean the trap bar for example i mean trap bars have been around forever right but man how how much how nice is it as a trainer to just be able to move those handles right like <laughs> no it's boxes no, like yeah. dude like it's like if there was nothing else if, 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 if you could sell that thing on just the fact that like look this thing is so convenient i'm no longer gonna do rdls on a rack or what like since i've gotten that thing i don't think i have picked a barbell up off the ground right because it's oh. like oh it's just so more convenient just use the trap bar honestly i haven't either and i honestly i'm surprised that of all the features that you've influenced that one has not been stolen because it seems like a really simple one relatively speaking um because it's great it's because that was one they were able to patent oh nice cool right cool i think yeah so yeah so, so there's all there's a whole thing you know with that as well it's just like okay you know, as we're doing these things, what things can we protect and what things can't we and, and where? Like, yeah, uninteresting conversation, but always always a challenge in this industry to protect your work for sure. Well, Kasim, I think this will be a great time to put a pin in it. Honestly, I didn't even realize the time. I got to go home and change some diapers. But I want to say thank you so much for your time uh, and all this information. I'm interested in re-listening to it and learning a bit more. And any research you have, I'm excited to explore. But Kasim, I think people already know, but where can people find you? So you can find us on YouTube. Uh, it's just the N1 Education channel. Um, and we are on Instagram as well. Uh, so you can find me directly. It's coach underscore Kasim. I'm sure that my spelling and my name will be somewhere in there. Um, and then we also have two other accounts, N1 Education and N1 Training. So if you're looking at our stuff and you're trying to figure out you know, what's best for you, N1 Education is where our course material is, and N1 Training is more of where our foundational stuff is um, if you, you know, are earlier just starting out in your fitness journey. Dude, thank you so much for your time. It was a pleasure having you on. All right, same.